Thanks, Brett. Well, I do hope you don't fall asleep today, though, <laughs> as well. So that could be good feedback. But um, during this series, we've been looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, and we've met some important people who have contributed to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. At the beginning of Ezra, we meet Zerubbabel, who was sent back to Jerusalem to lead people in building the temple, and it had a mixed response. Then in Ezra 7, we meet Ezra, who leads people in the teaching of the Torah to rebuilding community in Jerusalem, which again has a mixed response. Then today, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 1 and 2, where we meet Nehemiah, a man serving in the Persian government who will go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild But first, before we explore that, let's pray. God, I thank you that you are powerful. I thank you that you invite us, no matter who we are or where we are at in our lives, into your presence to draw near to you. So Lord, as we come before your word, I pray that You will speak into our lives. We will know more about who you are and what that means for our lives. Praise in your son's holy name. Amen. So whenever I was sick as a kid, mum and dad would always set up a bed on the couch in front of the TV for me. And this is the days before Netflix and streaming services where you sort of just had to watch whatever comes on. So you have your morning TV, then your late morning TV, you have your midday news, you have your Dr. Phil, and then soap opera o'clock. And I was young, I couldn't really grasp what was happening in most of the soap operas, but what I did get is there was always a reveal and a dramatic response. You know how it goes, one character might say, well, why do you care? Another one says, because I am not who you think I am. <gasps> Everyone gasps. I am actually your mother. <gasps> and then just to top it all off, there's always that one extra thing, like a twist, just like, and your enemy is my lover. <gasps> that one extra thing to make it reveal after reveal, response after response. And here today in the book of Nehemiah, we have a dramatic reveal. So I'm excited about it. We have a dramatic response. It's exciting. So let's have a look. In verse 2, we see Nehemiah asks his brother about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. The question has quite the response. Let's check out verse 3. They said to me, me being Nehemiah, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So there's a dramatic reveal. Nehemiah feels whatever's revealed to him so deeply, he cannot help but weep. But what's the reveal? The wall of Jerusalem's knocked down. A wall is knocked down. Now, 
I can't help but think that is a lot of emotion for just a wall. I mean, people renovate houses every day. I've seen the block. People knock down walls, and I've never watched the block weeping. I mean, I might like a wall if it has a pretty mural. If someone knocked it down, I'd be a bit sad, but I wouldn't sit and weep. So what am I missing here? What is the big deal about this wall? Or better question, why is the wall's destruction so devastating? Well, in Old Testament times, it was the status quo for cities to have the big wall around it. And it was super important to the city. Like our houses' walls will protect us from things like weather, from wild animals, unwanted guests. The city walls would protect the city itself from the smallest wild animal to a whole army of people. So with the walls knocked down, Jerusalem was vulnerable. The temple which Zerubbabel had gone back to Jerusalem to build was vulnerable. The community which Ezra taught the Torah in was vulnerable. And to Nehemiah, Jerusalem wasn't just any other place, no. Nehemiah was a Jewish man. Jerusalem was the promised land once promised to Abraham. The land that his people went through so much to get to. Jerusalem was meant to be a city on the hill, a blessing to their nations, hope of the world. Yet, it seems there's none of that hope left. Nehemiah may not have been physically in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was still a part of Nehemiah's identity a part of his connection to God, a part of Nehemiah's people. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Nehemiah heard this and he wept. He wept for Jerusalem not only because it's a place of his identity and his people's identity was tied to, he wept because it actually represented what was going on in the heart of the people who were there. You see, Nehemiah prays a prayer which gives us insight into what's happening with God's people. And it's not the typical prayer you'll see in the Old Testament showing how it really just is Nehemiah being real and coming before God. So let's have a look at what he confesses in this prayer. He says... I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. The wall of Jerusalem being knocked down is a physical symbol of what is happening to the Israelites. Jerusalem was supposed to be a place for God's people, but God's people weren't acting like God's people. Jerusalem was supposed to be a blessing to the nations, yet had become a place of wickedness and disobedience. Jerusalem had become a promised gift from God, but the people had lost sight of God entirely. And Nehemiah included, he owns up to it. In verse 6, he says to God, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. What one commentator says is what we see here in Nehemiah is Nehemiah experiencing a holy discontent. When the destruction of Jerusalem's wall is revealed to Nehemiah, 
he experiences a deep and personal response to his own brokenness and the brokenness of his people. Think about Martin Luther. When he experienced grace, he could not help but have a deep and personal response to corruption in the church. Think about William Wilberforce, who understood the gospel and then saw slavery and saw those two things don't align. Think about William Carey, who couldn't bear the fact that people went from birth to death without hearing about the word of Jesus. These great historical figures began with a holy discontentment, and here Nehemiah is experiencing such holy discontentment he cannot help but weep. What makes you weep? What is your holy discontent? What can you not help but have a personal response to? I mean, we know the state of the world. <laughs> it's clear things are not how it should be. Homes are flooded, people are fleeing from war, war or even worse, they're dying from it but you don't even have to think that big of a scale or that far away to see that the world is not how it should be. In our own community, people are fighting their own struggles and their own battles, whether that's the struggle to fit into a community and find their people, whether it's a struggle with conflict with someone else or a struggle within themselves. It is abundantly clear that there is brokenness and pain in the world which does not align with God's plan. There are all sorts of reasons for us to experience the feeling of holy discontentment just as Nehemiah did. Nehemiah felt the pain of things being not how God wanted them to be just as we do today. Now, a few years ago, when I first started Bible college, I really struggled with my essays. And a person who struggles with their essay, if they're logical, they might, I don't know, start it early or ask for help, get some extra resources, but uh, <laughs> not me. I would spend my time researching flights to Portugal. <laughs> because you see, I wanted to live in delusion and actually not even acknowledge my essay was there. I mean, I did that for a while. I did do my essay eventually, and I haven't been to Portugal, but I think when something is difficult to acknowledge, it is so tempting just to ignore it and live in delusion. And this can be the same when we're confronted with an ugly truth like Nehemiah was. Nehemiah could have felt his holy discontentment and then just said, well, that's Jerusalem's problem. I'm not there. But he didn't. He confronted it, and he brought it to God. Nehemiah calls upon God in prayer. He calls upon God even though it is uncomfortable to do so. It is uncomfortable for him to face the state of his people. Even more so, it's uncomfortable for him to acknowledge that he himself has contributed to the brokenness in the world. It could be so easy for Nehemiah to point fingers and saying, well, they're the sinful ones, they're the ones screwing up. The same way it can be easy for us to point fingers at other people's sin as well, instead of acknowledging that we actually all have sin and brokenness and might contribute to that in the world. Coming before God with our holy discontentment 
is as an, an uncomfortable experience because it means facing reality about the brokenness in the world and within ourselves. Nehemiah calls upon God even when it takes sacrifice. It says in the text, it says in the Bible that he mourned, he prayed, he fasted. That would have taken time, energy, emotional capacity. He would have been sacrificing his comfort as he fasted. Nehemiah calls upon God despite what it cost him within his day-to-day life. And Nehemiah calls upon God even though it's dangerous. Anyone who approaches the king, we know if they are not summoned, they could be killed. We see it happen in the book of Esther, the risk sort of that Esther has to weigh up, and it's the same here. So Nehemiah knows that if he goes before the king to talk to him without being summoned, he could be killed. And then not only that, the king actually has a decree against building in Jerusalem. So not only would Nehemiah have to go before the king, he would have to go before the king and say, hey, mind changing a law for me? This is a dangerous thing that Nehemiah could be engaging with. But despite discomfort, despite sacrifice, despite danger... Nehemiah calls upon God and gives his situation entirely to God and puts it in his hands, losing grip on the outcome. Why? Because God is powerful and keeps his promise for his people. Nehemiah knew that God kept his promise when he first led Israel out of slavery into the promised land. Even when Israel gave up on God, God showed time and time again that he would not give up on Israel. Nehemiah drew near to God and called upon him to use his power to keep his promise to his people. And what happens? Nehemiah is summoned by the king. Nehemiah does actually work for the king as a cupbearer, as it says at the end of chapter 1. But he was summoned by the king specifically to do his job. So he was doing his job, bringing wine to Artaxerxes, when suddenly the king notices something. Let's look at what the king says in chapter 2. The king asks Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but a sadness of heart. Now, we know why Nehemiah is so sad, but we also know if Nehemiah tells the king that he's sad because of something that the king enforced in a decree, the king might just get insulted in order for him to get killed. Nehemiah is at a crossroads. He has a choice to make of what he is going to do. And he feels like any of us would. It says, I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He goes for it. Nehemiah goes for it. He confronts the king and brings it before it, even though he was afraid. And how does the king respond? Five words, one sentence. The king said to me, What is it you want? Now, when I get asked at a cafe what I want to eat, 
That's like an expected question, I instantly panic. So I can't even imagine how Nehemiah feels in this moment where he has to just answer what he wants. But Nehemiah knows the gravity of the situation, so before he says anything, it says he prays. It says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. The stakes were high. It was make or break. It was win or lose, where winning meant everything and losing could mean dying. But Nehemiah took the step of faith and what happened? It paid off. The king was pleased. Nehemiah was to go rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And not only that, it goes on in chapter 2 to explain that the king even provides things for Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. God used his power for his people to keep his promise. And God will do the same for us. The same God which Nehemiah drew near to invites us to draw near. The same God with the power to make what seems impossible happen is the same powerful God that we follow as Christians. The same God who had a promise for his people has a promise to us too. And we are all invited to be his people. So let us be like Nehemiah. Let us draw near to God and take a step of faith. Now, this time last year, I lived in northwest Sydney with my parents and our lovely little bush home. I was working a community service job, which was stressful at times, but really rewarding and fulfilling. I had all my friends near me just a short drive away, going to the church that I'd grown up at my entire life, where I knew everyone, where I knew where I fit in, where I could serve. Yet... Through a series of promptings, conversations, and events, God called me out of my comfortable context to here, where I didn't know anyone, where I was about to live out of home for my first time, where I was about to begin a new job and begin studying again. Like Nehemiah, I was afraid, though... I think that's about all I have in common with Nehemiah because I'm honestly preaching this sermon to myself. Hindsight season 2020 and upon reflection, though I continued to step out, I didn't always draw near to God. And when you do something for God, let lose sight of him even for a second, it's terrifying. It's confusing you feel hopeless. If we as Christians are to live out our faith as we are called to do, if we're to take bold steps of faith for God, it is crucial to first draw near to God because otherwise, what are you going to live out? It's impossible to be living as a follower of God when you've lost sight of God. Drawing near to God allows us to step out and take a leap of step faith, but if you don't draw near to God, Stepping out is futile. So draw near to God. 
Bring him your holy discontentment. Allow him to speak into it because God too experiences discontentment with the brokenness of the world. Maybe not in the exact same way that we do, but we see in the gospel, Jesus wept. He experienced heartache over the brokenness in the world when confronted with it. We are not alone in how we feel. So God wants to draw us near near so he can speak into that, to lead us and join, join him in his plan for restoration. Yep, it can bring discomfort acknowledging the brokenness in the world and in yourself. It might take sacrifice. You might have to sacrifice your time, energy, money, effort, whatever. It might even mean danger. There's a potential risk. If you're giving control over to God and then he calls you out of your comfort zone, that's scary. But this is the same God Nehemiah prayed to who has used his power to fulfill his promise for his people. It is the same God which used his power to die for the sins of the world His people, for his people, us, promising us a restored relationship with him from now until eternity. The gospel message is life-changing if true and meaningless if false. So if you believe it's true, let it change your life. Draw near to our powerful God and let him lead you to make bold steps of faith. And how will stepping out go? I don't know. Stepping out in faith went well for Nehemiah at first, but as we saw in the passage. But as the book continues, he faces a lot of opposition, and that's what we're going to explore in future sermons. Stepping out in faith doesn't mean stepping out with a promised outcome and a full understanding of what's going to happen. It doesn't mean stepping out knowing you're going to succeed. That's what faith is. It's just taking that step. And knowing that God is powerful, that he is in control, and that his will prevails. And we can hold on to the hope, at least, of what he's promised us, his people. A restored relationship with him from now, but also into eternity, where he'll restore it all. But until then, what's your holy discontentment? What is God revealing to you as you draw near? What bold step of faith are you being called to? Draw near to God. Keep building those spiritual rhythms as we've discussed in previous weeks. Pray, read the scripture, fast, experience solitude. Allow God to place a holy discontentment on your heart. And then... Let him lead you to make bold steps of faith, like he led Nehemiah. Drawing near to God allows his people to take bold steps of faith, which he calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are powerful. You are powerful so much so that You sent your son Jesus to die on the cross 
to overcome our death and sin so we can have a restored relationship with you. So, Lord, let us remember this. Let us draw near to you. I pray that we can understand what it looks like to draw near to you in our day-to-day and continue to make bold steps of faith. I thank you, our holy God. Amen.